Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, episode eight of this Acts of the Holy Spirit series. So far this season, we've spent time introducing the book of Acts and looked at how those early disciples carried the responsibility of starting this movement called Christianity that would carry on the last 2,000 years. The church was established the day Jesus ascended to heaven. We walked through Acts 1 and we got a real understanding of what happened once the disciples of Jesus left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem as they were commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. The 120 gathered together continually. They, they met together. They were constantly united in prayer. They had their first church business meeting. And the main order of that business meeting was to appoint a new disciple or an apostle as the 11 were now called. They did what they were commanded to do. They, they opened the, the Old Testament scriptures. They prayed. They, they sought guidance from God. They got organized. They, they prepared. And we saw in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit came. And this was by God's design to inaugurate the birth of the church. Guys, we are the church. This is our story. And this is our history. We see through the lens of the holy book called the Bible, the birth of the church. In Acts 1, the disciples uh, waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, he arrived. In Acts 1, the disciples were equipped for their ministry. In Acts 2, the disciples were empowered for their ministry. In Acts 1, the disciples were held back and made to wait. And then in Acts 2, the disciples were sent out. And Peter immediately preached his first sermon. And the Holy Spirit convicted 3,000 hearts. And the church went from a group of, of 120 people to 3,120 people in one day. And then we spent time in Acts 4 and we saw the church continue to expand as Peter and John faithfully and boldly stayed the course as they led the church. They healed and they preached and the, and the church continued to grow at a rapid pace. And it grew so fast that the religious elite began to catch on and this, this brought on real persecution. They began experiencing real opposition. And that would only increase every day that went by. Why? Because they continued to defy man. And they would only comply with the Lord. And this was a serious offense to the religious leaders of the day. We then opened Acts 5 and we, we walked through and saw how the church had, had really become a force. They were under uh, heavy persecution, so it's obvious they were doing something right. But through this, Satan was active. And we came face to face with the first recorded incident of sin in the church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, their sin of hypocrisy that led God to killing them right in front of the entire congregation? We then open uh, to Acts 6 and 7, we saw Stephen's recorded sermon that led to his stoning. Saul of Tarsus led the execution. And then after this, he led the charge to wipe Christianity off the planet. It was the day that he rode into Damascus that he met the risen Jesus and was completely transformed. He was literally humbled and, and knocked off his high horse. And this would be the day that Saul would be taken off the wide road, headed towards destruction, and be sovereignly placed on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. It was on this day the history of the church changed. All because one man was transformed. The, the blasphemer Saul became the preacher Paul. A man filled with hate became an ambassador of love. The man who wrote execution papers for the disciples of Christ would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Guys, Paul's life would go down as the greatest gospel transformation story of all time. We then walk through the next few years of the story that brought us to the, the first missionary journey in Acts 13. Saul's sight had been restored. He was converted. He, he was baptized. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul immediately went from persecutor to preacher. God, God would spend the next 
15 years or so preparing Saul, changing his name to Paul, and then sending him out along with Barnabas on the first missionary journey with the mission of taking the gospel to the nations. The journey was hard. The journey was dangerous. Paul and Barnabas were, were not the most popular amongst the towns, but what they came to do, they did. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel and established churches and they raised up leaders, even in the face of the hardest opposition, even in the face of death. And last week we saw that Paul and Barnabas had made it back home to Antioch of Syria. And after about a year of rest, they, they looked to begin the second missionary journey. This time around, there was some conflict that split Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, you remember, wanted to bring John Mark back to the mission field, and Paul did not. So they agreed to disagree, and they, and they parted ways. And I think that, that's saying it nicely. With that, Barnabas and John Mark headed to Cyprus, and Paul, Paul took Silas, and they headed to Asia Minor. The Lord led Paul and Silas back through Galatia, where they picked up Timothy. And after covering the province of Galatia, then hitting wall after wall after wall, the three ended up in Troas, where they picked up Luke and sailed to Macedonia. They ended up in Philippi, where they would leave behind an established church. From Philippi to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica to Berea, and then Paul would would leave Berea alone and head to Athens. It was lots of chaos. It was lots of drama, lots of persecution. But with all of that, lots of kingdom activity and lots of church growth. Guys, Paul was becoming recognized throughout the known world as the man who was turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Every city he stepped foot into was wrecked for Christ. His impact was strong. So we pick up this week where we left off last week. Paul's enemies in Thessalonica pursued him to Berea. And then he had to flee from Berea. And he left Silas and Timothy there in Berea. And, and now he's in Athens. They've hustled him off and he's alone. Paul's been hunted. He's been hated. He's been harassed. His life has been threatened. And by the time he gets to Athens, it's, it's likely he's just going to wait until Timothy and Silas can come and be with him. And many commentators think this is the low point of Paul's ministry. Here he's, he's facing a monumental city in Athens. And we need to understand that at this time, Athens was the intellectual center. It was the university of the world. The great minds of this part of the world congregated here in Athens. Athens also offered a home to almost every god in existence. They had a god for everything. I mean, it was a pagan city in the fullest sense, of, but, but super cultured. And let me just remind you who Paul was as he stepped foot all by himself into the city. Guys, Paul was, was a, a, a Jew of Jews. He, he was uh, a Pharisee. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was an expert in the law. He was a leader, a teacher. He was a Roman citizen. He had special knowledge of the military and politics. Beyond that, he was, he was a Greek. Now, he wasn't Greek by virtue of his heritage, but Greek by, by his environment. He was raised in Tarsus, which was tremendously influenced by Greek culture. He was exposed to Greek art and Greek philosophy. So understand that Paul had the best of both worlds. He, he was intensely committed. He was a fearless preacher. He was a brilliant question and answer dialogue man. He was well-read. He was uh, well-traveled. Guys, Paul was extraordinary. So here Paul was in Athens, the pagan city who had a God for everything. They even had a God called the unknown God because all the gods they had never satisfied them. They still looked for another one. And isn't that the, the frustration of idolatry? We, we chase after all these things that we think are going to satisfy us, yet they never do. Because we in the West, we're not much different than these people in Athens. But here was Paul in this city. And Acts 17, 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them, speaking of Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So with all this being known about Athens, you think Paul would be impressed. 
Think about it. The glory of the city, the architecture, all he had heard about this place. But friends, let me be very clear. Paul wasn't impressed. Not one bit. He, he was absolutely overwhelmed with burden for lostness in this place. For, from the moment he stepped foot into this Athens place, this, this is what he saw. Paul looked beyond the cultural facade and he saw the reality of men's hearts. You know how I know this? Because Paul never wrote, not once, about such superficialities. He, he only saw the lostness of men. Historians have written volumes on top of volumes on top of volumes to describe Athens. Paul wrote one sentence. It's full of idols. Period. Guys, Paul saw past all the superficial to the spiritual issue. And this, this was such a gift. And we ought to, to long for vision like this. We ought, we ought to long for a burden like this. Why? Well, it's a mark of, of a true spiritual person. Guys, remember what the scriptures say? Man doesn't, man looks on the outward appearance while God looks where? Right, the heart. So we ask, how do we see our cities? How do we see our communities? How, how do we see our neighborhoods? And guys, this is what drove Paul because he was provoked in his spirit and because he burned inside, it compelled him to move. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he boldly preached the uncompromised, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I suggest you go read what Paul preached and who he preached to because we don't have time to walk through it in depth today. But check out Acts 17, 32 through 34. And, and it tells us the outcome of, of what he preached. It says, when they heard Paul, preached that long message from Acts 17. Some mocked, but others said, we want to hear more. So Paul left, but some men joined him and believed. So with that, Paul left Athens and he departed and, and he went to Corinth. And when Paul arrived in Corinth, man, he, he was broken. He was frustrated and, and weary and burdened. And I'm sure he was at the end of his rope. He, 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 he had been chased halfway around the world. He started off in, in Antioch of Syria on a simple missionary journey with Silas. He, they confirmed some churches in the area, near Syria, uh, Syria and then Galatia. They continued west, crossing over to Troas and into Philippi, where he, he was wrongly accused and beaten and then thrown into prison. He left there, and when he arrived in Thessalonica, he was persecuted terribly. He had run, to, run for his life to Berea. And as soon as he established some roots there, the enemies from Thessalonica show up and they threaten and chase him again. And he found himself alone in Athens and was weary and, and was burdened. And the gospel was preached in Athens. And there, you know, though there wasn't major persecution, there wasn't much reception either. And I think that explains why he didn't stay there long. So he packed up and left. And when he left Athens, he went to Corinth. And guys, Corinth was known as the city of sin. It was an immoral city. I mean, think Las Vegas. Corinth was the most debauched and debased city in the entire world in this day. It was the most vile to the very core. All you could lust. Whatever your flesh wanted, it could have. I mean, guys, it was the vanity fair of, of the Roman Empire. It was a carnival atmosphere infiltrated with prostitutes. I mean, if, if Paul had a burning burden for the lost in Athens, I can only imagine how he felt when he arrived in Corinth. So here Paul was again, alone. It was approximately 50 AD. He was discouraged. He was despondent. He was weak. He may have even been physically ill. And how do we know all this? Well, again, we talk about cross-referencing and reading uh, the letters that he wrote to these churches speaks a lot about some of the things he was going through in details. But you turn to 1 Corinthians 2.3 and it tells us some details about, about Paul's first visit to Corinth. It says, And I, when I initially came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, here it is, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then we turn to 1 Thessalonians 3.7, which, which Paul actually wrote from Corinth at this very time. It says, Therefore, brothers, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress because of your faith. So there it is. Between these two letters, Paul describes his state when he arrived in Corinth the first time. He was weak. He, he was fearful, uh, trembling. He was in much affliction and distress. And it is at this point that God moves in to encourage him because Paul desperately needed it. I mean, this is the moment God brings Paul some friends. He, he gives Paul comfort and companionship. God brought two Christians into his life that became so close to him that he mentions them again and again throughout his ministry. Acts 18, two through three says, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native, uh, who was a native of Pontus who recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked for they were tent makers by trade. So just a little side note. Can you imagine Paul meeting two Christians at this point. I mean, as soon as he found out they were believers, they hit it off. I mean, the scriptures say Paul stayed with them. He worked with them. He did life with them. He became part of their lives. But at this point, Paul begins doing what he did every, everywhere he went. He worked and, and simultaneously shared the gospel. He, he did what we call um, bivocational life. He did ministry and he worked. So if we look at 1 Thessalonians 2.9, it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then we turn to 2 Thessalonians 3.7-8. He says essentially the same thing. It says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So in other words, Paul didn't freeload off of anyone. He, he worked day and night. He, he didn't show up there in Corinth or anywhere with a strategy to raise support and live off donations. He went to work. And as he went, he shared the gospel. Now, with all that being said, I'm not saying that if you're in full-time ministry that you should not live off of people's giving because that happens sometimes. Some are called to that, but obviously Paul was not. But the thing I want to point out, and the bigger point is, I just, I want to point out how Paul did what he did. He exhausted himself for the gospel and never took a penny from anyone. Paul never wanted to make the gospel something that people had to pay for. He worked full-time while expanding the kingdom of God, and he did it better than anyone in, in the history of the church. Guys, he is the standard in which we should strive to be, period. But let's see a bigger point here. Even through the fear and weakness and affliction and sickness and labor and toil, he never made excuses. He worked and he shared Christ. And just like he had every time before, he started with the Jews. Acts 18, four through six tells us that as he witnessed and reasoned with the Jews and Greeks, guess what? Well, you probably already know. Paul was opposed and Paul was rejected. The word opposed here means they, they had organized opposition. It's, it's a word that indicates organized resistance. They came to a deliberate decision that what Paul was preaching was wrong. And what was Paul preaching? Jesus is Messiah. And guess what? They, they couldn't get on board with it. These people blasphemed God after hearing the gospel. So Paul rebuked them and he told them that their blood was on their own heads. In other words, he said, I fulfilled my responsibility. I came, I delivered the gospel. I presented it clear enough. You are responsible for what you do and how you respond. And with that, he took the message of Christ to the Gentiles. And guys, let's keep in, in mind the level of frustration that Paul must have felt at this moment. So much that the Lord came and spoke to Paul in the night. Acts 18, 9 through 10 tells us that it was an actual vision that Paul had. Essentially, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, hey, Paul, relax. I'm with you. 
you, you must keep preaching because I have many jewels hidden in this cesspool of a city and you are the man I'm using to pull them out. Guys, there were people here in Corinth, not yet saved, that God would use Paul to rescue with the gospel. They were prepared hearts. They were ready to receive. And Paul had to stay the course because he was the chosen vessel. And we know based on Acts 18.5 that Silas and Timothy had arrived from Thessalonica with an offering from the Philippian church and a letter from the Thessalonian church. And, and this, this played a major role in encouraging Paul's heart. And a little side note, isn't it amazing how God works? I mean, Paul, who was in desperate need when he arrived in Corinth, is provided with a job, two new Christian friends who give him hospitality, and then a vision and assurance from the Lord himself of what he would accomplish there in Corinth. But besides those three things, God brings two old friends back. And the day Silas and Timothy showed up was a, it was a joyous day. Their arrival prompted Paul's writing of 1 Thessalonians in response to this loving letter that Paul had received from them. So God had, had given Paul companionship and, and a job. God had showed up in a vision to encourage him. God had safely brought Silas and Timothy to Corinth with, with more encouragement. I know this lifted Paul's spirits and gave him what he needed to spend the next 18 months establishing a foundation in a city that desperately needed Jesus. Paul obeyed the Lord and the Corinthian church was birthed. And we know the Corinthian church was predominantly a Gentile church. I mean, Acts 18.8 mentions Crispus and his entire family, who are Gentiles, being the first in the city of Corinth to surrender to Jesus. The text elsewhere in the Bible mentions Stephanus and, and Erastus, two very important figures in Corinth. And there were many others mentioned in the New Testament. Cordus, Fortunatus, and Chloe, to name a few. The, the church in Corinth was established and strengthened over the remainder of Paul's stay this time around. And another side note, during the remainder of Paul's stay in Corinth, he would receive another letter from the church of Thessalonica. And in response to that, he would write 2 Thessalonians. So understand, at this point, approximately 51, 52 AD, we now have the book of James. We now have the letter to the Galatians. And now we have 1 and 2 Thessalonians in circulation. Acts 18, 18 says, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth and then took a leave of the brothers and he left the church he had established and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So Syria is, is where Palestine is. It's where Jerusalem is. So Paul, understand, is all the way in Greece. And he had to travel all the way from Greece. It was hundreds and hundreds of miles by boat. And we know boats didn't travel very fast in this day. So we know it was a long trip. And it's likely Paul traveled for weeks. But notice it says he took with him Priscilla and Aquila. I mean, they were the first two believers in Corinth. They, they were Christians and, and they were leaders. So this tells us that there's only one way Paul is taking with him these, these two, and, and that is this. He's only taking Priscilla and Aquila if there's someone else there to take the responsibility of pastoring and leading the church of Corinth. He's not going to leave it, you know, in the hands of, of, of people who aren't leaders and who, who aren't uh, equipped. So what this tells us is that Paul had spent that 18 months raising up adequate spiritual leaders for the church in Corinth. And when this time came, at this point, they didn't, they didn't really need Paul anymore. They didn't need Priscilla and Aquila anymore. Guys, this says a lot about Paul's teaching and, and a lot about his leadership. It says a lot about his intentions. It says a lot about how we should be doing church today. We should be focused on discipleship and raising up leaders, not bringing people into a building to have them feed off of one person for the rest of their life. So Paul had come and established his church and now it was time to go. And the text says they set sail for Palestine. Acts 18, 19 tells us what happened next. It says, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So there's much happening here. Apparently the ship needed to stop there in Ephesus. And one thing we are certain of is this. The Lord needed to stop there. And I think it, it, if it was up to Paul, he would have just traveled on through. But the ship stopped at Ephesus. And it says Paul, and, uh, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there. Paul, Paul left them there as tent makers or leather workers. And God ends up using them to find a church. 
And how do we know this? Well, when Paul is back on missionary journey number three, Paul writes from Ephesus to the Corinthian church and he tells them that the church had been established in Ephesus and was being run out of Priscilla and Aquila's house. The Lord used them to establish the church in Ephesus. And you know how this started? God transplanted these two people to work in a new area through Paul. And Paul wanted Christ to be glorified and this area needed to be impacted. So what did he do? Well, before Paul left for Jerusalem, he entered the synagogue to reason with the Jews. He, he starts preaching to establish a foundation of the church right there. He goes blasting through the synagogue, laying out that Jesus is Messiah. He gets done and they want more. And Paul says, look, I, I've got to go, but there are going to be two hanging back that, that can take it from here. And Paul left Priscilla and Aquila to do the follow-up. I mean, guys, how amazing is this? Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. And check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? So Paul heads for the seaport in, in Caesarea, which is very close to Jerusalem. It's directly northwest of Jerusalem. And the text says Paul went and greeted the church. And what church is this? Well, it's the mother church, the church in Jerusalem. And after this brief visit, he headed back to Antioch of Syria, home base. And this concluded the second missionary journey. And at this point, it's about 52 AD. And, and all we know is this. He stayed there in Antioch a little while and rested, and then he departed. Paul probably recharged for a few months, and we all know Paul can't sit long. So it was time to hit the road. And Acts 18.23 says, After spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So guys, understand, Paul was a traveling pastor. He didn't stay anywhere long. There was much to accomplish. And there were little churches that had been established all over the province of Galatia and Macedonia. And at this point, he longed to go and check on all of them. He longed to make sure that they were growing. And at this point, around 53 AD, Paul was off on his third journey. You know where he went? The same place he went on his second missionary journey. You know where he went on his second missionary journey? The same place he went on his first missionary journey. So this shows us right here, guys, understand the biblical pattern of evangelism. You strengthen the converts and let them do the work. The scriptures are showing us right here that Paul went back to the same group three times. And now in Acts 18.24, we're introduced to a man named Apollos. And what a man Apollos was. Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's over in Cilicia on his way to Galatia. And the scene here shifts back to Ephesus where Paul had dropped off Aquila and Priscilla. They had established a church there a year earlier. And now Apollos shows up on the scene. And the scriptures describe him as an eloquent man who was mighty in the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit, meaning he was an intense man. He, he spoke and he taught the things of the Lord. But Apollos had only been taught under the teachings of John the Baptist. So in other words, Apollos was an exploding kind of person when it came to the Old Testament scriptures. He was uh, dramatic and dynamic. He was an Old Testament scholar who could present with absolute power but he was not a Christian at this point. He, he did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He, he didn't know the gospel. Acts 18.26 tells us he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, man, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in other words, Priscilla and Aquila shared the gospel of Jesus with him. and He came to Christ and received the Holy Spirit and, be, and became a major force. Such a force that when he arrived in Corinth, Acts 18.28 says Apollos wiped out the entire city of Corinth for Jesus. 
And how do we know this? Well, let's flip to 1 Corinthians 1.12 and look at what it says. What I mean, this is Paul saying, what I mean is that each one of you at the church of Corinth says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas or Peter. I follow Christ. Guys, 1 Corinthians was written less than two years from the time Apollos received salvation. Hardly any time has gone by. And in no time, he's ranked right up there with Paul and Peter in the terms of, of the esteem of the people. So it's, it's clear, it's evident that he was a unique man. And there's also speculation that Apollos could have written Hebrews. And to this day, we, we don't know the author of Hebrews, but Apollos could have been the author due to his giftings and, and intellectual ability. Now, don't, don't quote me on that. I did some research and found that tidbit, and I just thought it was interesting, but nothing confirmed. So we move on to Acts 19, and we see that while Apollos was at Corinth helping to strengthen the church, Paul goes to Ephesus. And Ephesus, guys, was a rich place. It was immensely populous. It, its population was divergent and immense. Its markets glittered with the products of, of the art of the world. In fact, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was there. Okay, This was where John would be exiled from to Patmos. And it's said that when John wrote Revelation 18, and the Lord gave him, gave him a picture of, of the sophisticated system of the world and the world's wealth and the world's uh, commerce, John likely had in his mind what he had seen in Ephesus during his time there. Revelation 18 could have been describing what Ephesus looked like. The, the, the merchandise of gold, silver, uh, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet, fine wood, all kinds of vessels of ivory, all kinds of vessels of, of most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, incense, ointments, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, and souls of men. I mean, that could be Ephesus all bunched into two verses. Not confirming that, but when the Lord showed John this end time system, this is what John certainly could have imagined. Okay, A rich system that was Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where sorcery existed and witchcraft existed and all kinds of perversions. There were magical imposters and exorcists all over the place. And you wonder why Paul wrote back to the Ephesians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Guys, this was an evil and dark place. And you need to remember this as we go a little deeper into his stay in Ephesus. Paul will soon confront some real evil. But you remember back in Acts 18.21 when it said, if God so wills, this was Paul saying, if God so wills, I'll come back. God did will it and Paul did come back. And when he came to Ephesus, he found some disciples. And who were these disciples? Well, they were Old Testament saints. And we know this because they were followers of John the Baptist who had not yet heard the gospel. And just a little side note here. We need to be careful not to read this text and see the word disciples and assume these men were disciples of Christ. We see in the book of Acts the word disciples being used multiple times to speak of, of Christians, so it's safe to assume that same thing here, but we can't. Notice in Acts 19.2, Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Am my point of showing you this? Well, many could take this verse and say that you can be a Christian and not have received the Holy Spirit. And I say that's not biblical. You, you cannot be a Christian and not have received the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit in fullness at true genuine conversion and salvation in Christ. And just because Luke calls these 12 men disciples does not mean they're in Christ. If you go back to the Gospel of John, what do you find him writing? He continually points out that you can't always determine anything by whether a person follows or whether he believes on the surface. I mean, look at what Jesus says in John 8, for example. It says, many believed on his name. And Jesus said, that's fine, but he that continues in my word is my disciples for real. It wasn't the ones who said they were disciples. It was the ones who did his will. The ones who obeyed his commands. They were true disciples. And then look at John 6, 66 for context. It says, and many of Jesus' disciples turned their backs and walked with him no more. Disciples turned their backs? The reality is they were surface disciples. They weren't true. 
So the word disciple here in Acts 19.2 refers to being a learner. And in the context of, of, of believing, okay, so these 12 men were disciples of John the Baptist, not Jesus. They had never heard the gospel. They were not Christians. They were Old Testament saints who followed John the Baptist. John the Baptist had prepared the way, remember? These men were prepared, but no one had told them the truth of the gospel. So here was Paul just hitting the ground in Ephesus, and he had the opportunity to share the Lord and see these men come to salvation in Christ. And picking up where Paul had asked these men where they stood with Jesus, Acts 19, 2 through 7 says they answered, no, we haven't even heard there was the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And I just want to point out that this chunk of text is the last time we read about anyone speaking in tongues. I just need to point that out. So at this point, these men become genuine Christians. And this shows that when any person becomes a follower of Jesus, they surrender their lives to Jesus in faith and repentance. The Spirit comes to dwell in them. How do I know? Well, Paul told us in Romans 8, 9. He told us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So never let a person lead you to believe that you don't have the Spirit of God in you or that you must work for it. If you've genuinely made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So we move on. Acts 19.8 doesn't give us details on what Paul did at this point. He just did what he always does. It says, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So this was known as Paul's longest stay in any synagogue, with the exception of possibly Corinth. For three months, from morning to night, he was disputing and persuading. He expounded to them. He testified of the kingdom of God and he tried to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament. But in core, of course, in the midst of this, the inevitable happens. It has to happen. The text says that some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Another translation of the text says, some were hardened and did not believe and spoke evil of the way before the multitude. So there were people present who were defiant towards God, those who mocked God, those who were abusive towards God. And we need to understand that this hardening of hearts is a process. You know, you know what happens? Gradual rejection of Jesus Christ, a gradual rejection of the gospel results in hardening. They, they gradually wouldn't believe. They gradually become more resistant. And eventually their hearts were like rocks. And so they refused to believe. And, and here's the deal. And, and this is still a major issue today. The more people reject truth, the more their hearts are hardened, causing the gospel to seem as foolishness. Okay, the, the life-giving aroma of the gospel becomes a foul stench to people. The gospel becomes a threat to people's lifestyles and desires. And this was happening while Paul preached and taught in Ephesus. This is why he faced opposition from many. Guys, people love their autonomy and sinfulness and do not want to submit to God. And this is what Paul faced as he preached and taught in front of these multitudes. This is what will happen to you and I if we follow in Paul's footsteps. It's inevitable. So Paul did what he was commanded by Jesus. Jesus said, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So Paul withdrew and took the disciples and those with soft hearts towards the gospel and continued to teach them daily in the school of Tyrannus. For two years, day and night, all while he worked a full-time job. Guys, understand something. For 1,095 uh, 1, straight days, for three straight years, five hours a day, Christians showed up to be taught by Paul. He, he'd make tents from the time he woke up until 11 a.m. Then he'd teach from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Then he'd go back and make tents from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. And Paul wasn't finished then. He'd teach from 8 p.m. until like 1 or 2 in the morning. Night and day, he taught. And this totaled up to three years according to Acts 20, 31 through 33. Guys, what a commitment on both sides. 
And it's even more tremendous how this man worked and supported himself all while doing this ministry. I'm so inspired by this. Paul saturated these people with the word of God. And it was this two to three year period that led to some major growth in the church. Paul's efforts here really produced some major fruit. Acts 19.10 says Paul's discipleship and teaching continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The text says all the residents of Asia, Asia heard the word of the Lord. I mean, does this mean that Paul was out running around sharing the gospel in all of Asia? No, he never left Ephesus during this time. It was his converts that spread the gospel throughout Asia Minor, also known as modern-day Turkey. This two-year period saw the founding of the churches at Colossae and Heropolis and likely all the other five churches mentioned in Revelation 2 through 3, which is Laodicea, Philadelphia, Pergamum, Thyatira, this, this was the fruit of Paul's ministry. Guys, this is what happens when you commit to do the Lord's work. This is what happens when you teach the word of God and make disciples. When you do this, they'll reproduce. This is how God uses us to expand his kingdom. We, we get this beautiful opportunity to be used. And Paul, because of his radical obedience, was used by God mightily. So we move on to Acts 19, 11 through 20, and we see God working miracles. And we see what these miracles stirred up in the people of Ephesus. And it's, it's important that we touch on it briefly. When we look at Ephesus and the people of this city through a historical lens, we see that they were very superstitious. I mean, Luke says in Acts 19, 11 through 12, that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So essentially people got Paul's old dirty sweatcloths and those who were touched with them were healed. L literal healing power came from these dirty clothes. And when the people saw these miracles going on, they all assumed that the power was Paul's. They believed that some mystical power was being transmitted. And in spite of all this nonsense, God did the miracles. And God did not do these miracles for any other reason but to confirm the word and Paul's authority. That's it. There's no other reason. It was to show the people that Paul came in the name of the Lord, not as some superhero. And understand something, guys. And I want to drive this point home because there are teachers today out there pushing miracles and wonders and training up people to be about the experience. We must get away from this pursuit of wonders and miracles. Guys, it is okay to pray for healing and, and pray for God to move. I'm for, I'm for all that. But the New Testament is not our manual for creating miracles. The miracles in the New Testament were always, always done to point people to spiritual truths, not for some kind of magic hocus pocus show. And these people here in Ephesus didn't truly get it, but these miracles drew people to Paul and Paul used them to share truth and people were convinced. The miracles were to draw people to God and to put the stamp of approval on these apostles every time. So yes, I'm saying that we aren't the early apostles. We do not have the same power they had. We have what they didn't. We have the full canon, okay? We have the word of God in completion. That's your miracle worker. Share the word and God will move and transform hearts. So we see God moving. And what happens when we see God gaining ground? Well, we've seen it all season, guys. Yes, Satan moves in. People are seeing the name of Jesus. Demons are being cast out. Diseases are being healed. And all of a sudden, some local exorcists think that they have a new gimmick. Acts 19.13 says some of the Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits saying, we exorcise you by the name of Jesus who, who Paul preaches. So these Jewish exorcists tried casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They were essentially trying to mimic what Paul was doing and they didn't know Jesus themselves. They saw what Paul was doing and they wanted to capitalize on it. The issue was God wasn't with them like he was with Paul. So when they began to try to do the work of the Lord, the demon and the man said, I know Jesus, I, I know Paul, but who are you? I mean, guys, can you imagine this scene? This demon-possessed man essentially calls these Jewish, Jewish exorcists frauds and fakes and then proceeds to jump on them and beat them bloody and naked. I mean, guys, when you have a fight and you get beaten to a point 
of buck nakedness, you lost. Straight up. I mean, when you get your clothes beat off, you lost. You, you took the L. But here's what happened. God didn't honor these representatives. God didn't authenticate them. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't really say, but we can only assume that they weren't faithful followers of Jesus. Their hearts weren't pure. Their motives weren't pure. So, so the question we want to ask ourselves is, do, we, do people recognize us as faithful followers of Jesus? Do, do we have pure hearts and pure motives? Well, guess what happened to the crowd who witnessed this? Acts 19, 17 through 18 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was, extol was, was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. This whole situation literally brought people to repentance. And those who practiced magic brought their books, brought their scrolls, their magical arts and their secret formulas and burned them right in the public square. That they had a public burning. And the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Guys, on this day, revival began in Ephesus. On this day, Satan lost. But please understand that Satan didn't get away. He didn't go away, okay? He kept plotting because Paul didn't stop working. And here's what we need to remember. Wherever the word of God dominates, results occur. And when this happens, opposition always comes. Because of the system, which is operated by Satan, the system can't tolerate the unadulterated presentation of the pure word. The advancement of the word will always have two results. Progress of the gospel and persecution from Satan. Always. Friends, we need to expect this. So we move on to Acts 19, 21 through 40. And we're about to see Satan turn it up. But before we get into it, let's address the text from Acts 19, 21 through 22. A lot happens in these two verses and we don't want to miss it. We see Paul making plans. We know Paul was the master strategist. Paul, Paul has, a, has a plan set in his mind according to the text. He, he sees the church in Ephesus established. He's been there for nearly three years teaching. He, he trusts they know enough to keep things going. He's established elders. He's established leaders. These Christians are now grown and mature. Churches have been established throughout the region. And Paul now says, I think I can leave. And his plan is to go back west to Macedonia, to Philippi and Thessalonica and the Corinth, and then back to Jerusalem. And once he finished in Jerusalem, he wanted to go to Rome. I mean, this was his plan. And what was his goal? Well, to continue the spread of the gospel, to check on all the churches out west that were established. He wanted to collect that love offering for the Jerusalem church, which was super poor, the poorest of them all. And according to Romans 15, 24, he planned to conquer Spain for the gospel. I mean, there was a tradition that Paul went to Spain, but there's no record of it in the Bible. It said that he may have visited there prior to his second arrest that led to his beheading under Nero, but we aren't sure. The important thing to understand is Paul was a master strategist and was intentional about his mission. He lived and he died for this. So moving on, Paul sends Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia to begin collecting that love offering and to let the churches know he's coming. So they, they left to pave the way. But Paul stayed in Ephesus for a short season. And a few things happened in that short season before he left Ephesus. He, he wrote the lost letter to the Corinthians. And after, after the church in Corinth received this letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that Stephanus and Fortunatus and, and Achaius show up in Ephesus with some support as well as concerns and questions. Paul then writes a response to those questions, which is the second letter, which we know is 1 Corinthians and he would write a third letter to the, to the Corinthians that would also be lost that he sends with Titus who would deliver and then stay to mentor the church in Corinth. And it's obvious based on the writings to the Corinthian church, they needed help. But all of this takes place in Ephesus. And at this point, it's approximately 55 to 56 AD. We look at Acts 19.23 and it says, About that time, there arose no little disturbance or commotion concerning the way. The, the way was a reference to Christianity. In other words, there were some people who were really uptight about the Christian message. Things were moving. Paul had been preaching. People were getting converted. The church was growing. All of Asia Minor was 
dominated by this message. So people, some people got uptight. People started to persecute. And you remember when I said that evil, that there was some evil that Paul would confront here in Ephesus. We've seen it so far in Ephesus. Paul preached and people spoke ill of him. Then comes the exorcist and they tried to mimic Paul and confuse people. And now we come to this point and we see Satan trying to muster all his powers to create riots that surge through the entire city in an effort to counteract the work of Paul and the Christians there. So Acts 19.24 mentions this guy Demetrius, a very infamous silversmith who is also mentioned in, in 3 John and in other places in the New Testament. He was influential and likely very wealthy because of his profession. He was likely the head of the guild of silversmiths and he steps up to the front to gather the leaders and the workers and he says, men, you know that, that we have our prosperity by this trade. You see and you hear that not only here in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has, pers has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they, the shrines, the silversmiths, uh, we're creating and selling are not gods, which are, are made with hands. So not only is our trade in danger, but the great goddess Diana is threatened and could lose her worship. So in other words, Demetrius said, look guys, we create these statues and shrines and most people in this entire region are customers. And this guy, Paul has come in and taught about this Jesus guy. And now our customers are turning to this Jesus guy and no longer buying our statue, which means they are no longer customers. And this means that we're gonna lose our business and go broke. So what happened was the gospel had hit them right in their money bags. I mean, this was bad for business. I mean, can you imagine today if our influence in our communities was so thick and so real that we put all illicit stuff out of business? I mean, you wanna see some anger? Mess with a person's money and see how that works for you. So just to put this into context, Imagine if you walked into a town. The town is full of wickedness. You got casinos and sex shops and bars on every corner, strip clubs, drug dealers, all the wicked things people, people's hearts and flesh desires. Well, you come in as a follower of Christ and your goal is to win the town to Jesus. So you begin sharing the gospel and discipling and teaching and grinding away. And after two and a half, three years, you win most of the city to Christ. So much so, that all the people who once took part in those fleshly and wicked pursuits, the casinos, the sex shops, the bars, strip clubs, the drugs, they no longer take part. Literally because of your influence and the move of the Holy Spirit, these businesses lost customers to, to a point where they're on the verge of shutting down. I mean, can you imagine how irate these business owners would be at you? The one that turned all their customers away from what they were selling. That, they would come for your head. Two things. First, that's crazy scary to think that you would be enemy number one. And second, how insane, how insane is your impact for Christ when you come into a town and shut down businesses because of your witness? Well, this is what this was Paul. And Paul's efforts filled these men with wrath, pure hatred. And this caused the whole city of Ephesus to be filled with confusion and anger and the city erupted into riots. The text says there was a great uproar. And the Greek word used for uproar is the same Greek word used in Matthew 27, 24 to describe what happened at Pilate's trial of Jesus. It was the same kind of uncontrollable, hysterical mob. And the cause for this uproar was materialistic. It was purely about money. Demetrius led the charge against Christianity because his God money was being threatened. And as we have walked through this season, we've seen people rising up in anger towards Christianity constantly. We cut to the heart of why people are so angry towards Christianity. Guys, it's very simple. Christianity makes people mad because people hate being confronted with their sinfulness and their sin. People don't like to have uh, to, to face the fact that their entire way of life and their entire system is wrong. This is today and this was then and this will always be. So these men and all, the, all of the people that instigated this rushed into the theater, which is said to have been able to hold up to 30,000 people. And the scriptures say that Paul's missionary companions from Macedonia were now caught up and were being dragged into this chaos. Paul was ready to jump in. I can only assume that he wanted to throw some bows, but this is, this is the Bible, so maybe that wasn't the case. 
But I will at least say this. Paul was not happy with what was going on. That's for sure. And thankfully, some faithful disciples that were present were there and wouldn't allow Paul to get involved. So essentially, they held Paul back. They used their heads. There was no sense in being stupid. And Paul, if he would have gotten away and gotten in there, probably would have been a dead man. And the crowds, literally, so picture this and imagine this. The crowds are just chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Literally for two straight hours. Straight up sound like Rain Man, okay? But then, all of a sudden, the city clerk comes in and he, he calms the crowd. He reasons with them. And how did he reason with them? Well, first understand, the city clerk was a pagan man. And he essentially, he essentially comes to, to Paul and his team's defense. Acts 19.37 says, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, these Christians don't steal and haven't blasphemed any gods. In other words, the, the, the Christians in Ephesus were just acting as Jesus commanded. Okay? They were just standing up for Christ, standing up for the gospel. They were doing nothing wrong. They were, as Jesus would say, being wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But think about this, guys. What a testimony in the mouth of this pagan city clerk. He essentially says, these Christians do not rob temples. They do not blaspheme our goddess. They do not blaspheme our gods. They do not commit sacrilege. They do not commit thievery. This pagan gives a testimony to these Christians' quality of life and character, and it ends the riot. And with that, the assembly dismissed. It was all over. And Acts 20, verse 1, tells us what happens next. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. So understand something here. Within the first few verses of Acts 20, much of the story is bypassed. We can't even appreciate what Paul and the missionary team endured to keep going. And so easily, we, we breeze through the verses and never really understand the depth. I mean, Acts 20, verse 2 says, When Paul had gone through those regions and had given much, much of them encouragement, he came to Greece. Guys, we have to follow the trek and understand exactly what this means. And I'll make this short for time's sake because we got to get to the end of this episode. But I want to touch briefly on some key events that took place during the close of this missionary journey. And it's vital that we continue to do what we've done all season and try to put ourselves in the shoes of Paul to truly grasp what he and his companions did for the early church. Guys, it's off the charts. And it's something that we must know. But the Bible simply says Paul left Ephesus for Macedonia. And we read that simply Paul left. But that, that's not how it really went down. He didn't simply leave anywhere. He didn't simply travel anywhere. We know he visited churches in the region. And that would be, you know, include Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea before traveling over to Greece. I mean, Luke gives us very little information. So it's not known whether he traveled by sea or by land to Macedonia. I mean, by land, the distance from Ephesus to Philippi is around 434 miles, which would have been like 19 days to walk. From Philippi to Corinth, the distance is another 372 miles which would have been another 15 or 16 days to walk. Guys, just imagine this. I'm talking like a month it would take him to walk. Paul returned to the church in Corinth where he stayed about three months on this third missionary journey. It's 57 AD. And at this point, much happened in the three months Paul was there. The church in Corinth received Paul with joy. The Corinthian church had, had raised this great offering to give to Paul to take to the mother church in Jerusalem. And then here in, in Corinth at this time, Paul would write the greatest doctrinal writing in all of history, the letter to the Romans. Romans 16.1 tells us, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at, at Century, which was the you know, port of Corinth. So it's the church of Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth that you may welcome her in, in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and, and of myself as well. Phoebe, who was a Corinthian, would be the one who would deliver this, this letter to the church in Rome on, on, the, on behalf of, of Paul. So we looked at Acts 23 and it tells us what happened after Paul's time in Corinth. It says, after three months in Corinth, a plot was made against Paul by the Jews as he, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. 
So Luke does not record the details of the Jews' plot, but it undoubtedly involved murdering Paul during the voyage to Syria. Paul, Paul would have been an easy target on a small ship packed with Jewish pilgrims. Because of that danger, Paul canceled his plans to sail from Greece to Syria and decided to return through Macedonia. And understand this, there was a hit out on Paul's life. So instead of taking a nice cruise straight across the Mediterranean Sea to, to the coast of Palestine, he now has to circle back through Macedonia by foot. And we already discovered how long that was. And while at Philippi, Luke rejoins Paul, which marks the start of Luke using the we and us passages. Paul and Luke leave Philippi and they rejoin the, the other members of the missionary team in Troas, which we recall as Luke's hometown. And we remember Paul had, had visited Troas before, before uh, uh, during his second missionary journey, where he had the vision of the man in Macedonia. And this time, Paul stayed about a week and he spent time teaching the church there. And while they were there on the Lord's Day, all the disciples gathered to break bread. They gathered to worship and do what we call church. And understand the early church always met in homes. The, the building didn't come until the third century. So they were gathering and Paul was preaching. And preaching for a hot minute because it says he preached into the night. And he, he preached so long that a certain young man named Eutychus sank into a deep sleep as he sat on the windowsill. And the scriptures say as he, sat, as he fell asleep, he fell out of the window and down three stories to his death. Guys, the kid was dead. Long story short, Paul stopped preaching, went down and laid his hands on the dead kid and told people in attendance, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. And this didn't mean he didn't die, but that his life had been restored. And Luke, the writer and witness, who was a physician, knew this and saw this and then wrote this down. So it's reliable. So after this incident, Paul went right back upstairs to preach. And the text says until daybreak, all night he preached. He preached like it would be his last time. And it was likely Paul's last sermon in Troas. Pa Paul would leave Troas and travel to uh, Assos by land. And the distance is about 31 miles, which would have been a very long day's walk. However, little do you know, the terrain was quite mountainous and potentially dangerous from bandits. So it's safe to say this, this wasn't like a hop, skip and a jump. Guys, this was a dangerous trek. This, this entire trip was just insane. So in Assos, Paul rejoined his companions on the ship traveling uh, to, to Mytilene. And they, they arrived in Mytilene and Luke records that they sailed from Mytilene and arrived opposite uh, Chios the following day. Luke records that they touched at Samos, probably meaning that the ship docked there overnight. And they continued the journey to Miletus the following day. And so it was a brief visit. They left Miletus the next morning. Paul sailed past Ephesus so he wouldn't have to spend time there. I think it pained him really to go back. So it was from Miletus. He called for the elders from Ephesus to meet for them one last time. And guys, Paul knew this was it. All he poured into these men, he poured his life out. And this meeting would be the, the, a meeting filled with tears, truly a bittersweet meeting. And here you had the spiritual father, Paul, leaving the elders who were, who were like sons to him. He had discipled them for years and they were in control of a very powerful church that, that Paul had established and he knew this, this was it. This was goodbye and, and he loved these men just as he loved all of Christ's church. This was Paul's reason for living. Guys, he lived to perfect the saints. In Acts 20, it tells us that the, the third missionary journey finishes with this. And when Paul had said these things to these elders in Ephesus, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. And they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And with this, Paul was off to Jerusalem. Paul traveled by ship from Miletus to Kos to Rhodes to Patara. He stayed overnight from there. You know, Paul had to change ships where he found one bound for, for uh, Phoenicia. And this is where Paul would land, the historic Phoenician city of Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon. And this is, this is where we wrap it up. From here, Paul and the team will head to Jerusalem. And Paul was anxious to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, but what awaited him there is more trouble, more persecution, and more chains. And would he stop? No, 
Guys, there was no turning back now. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Eight episodes down. Eight episodes in the book. One more to go. We finish season three next week. Paul finishes the race. Come back next week because we run from Acts 21 all the way through the end of the book, Acts 28. And we identify the last 10 years of Paul's life. And they were hard. Many ups and downs. But come back and finish strong with me. Guys, before I go, I need to continually be reminding you to ask yourself the question. The same question I asked myself. What does this story of God mean to us and what does it mean for us? Who are we in light of God? Friends, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you're following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You are chosen. You are a royal priest. You are part of a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. You and I have been called out of darkness, called out of the grave and into his wonderful light, into a life. And now you are to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. Do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, man, it's okay. Welcome to the club. Most are not. But come back next week because the point of this podcast is to walk this journey together. I'm currently learning myself, but together we will learn our identity in Christ and we will step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. Until next time, take care.